Well, this is a day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. The psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. What a privilege it is uh, to give honor to whom honor is due, to be invited by Pastor Colin Dye, senior minister, by Gabriel Chen, by Christian, by others here to share the word of God with you on this Sunday. And also this connection was made by our very good mutual friend, Reverend Dr. R.T. Kendall, who has been my friend for more than 30 years. It's an honor to be with you. And today, from Psalm 46, how not to get shook up when your world shakes down. In Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even if the earth is moved, the mountains fall into the sea, and the sea roars, we will not fear because God is our refuge. So on July the 7th, just the other day, I was in attendance in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Western Canada, in a meeting of uh, the Baptist World Alliance. Pastor Reed from Australia told about being on a vacation in Samoa, in the Pacific. He, his wife and daughter were on the beach when unexpectedly, suddenly, without any warning at all, a tsunami hit that beach in 2009. Eight meter tall wall of water suddenly swept all three of them and thousands of others out into the Pacific. Pastor Reed of Australia said just the other day as we were listening, mouth open, our hearts were pounding, our hands were perspiring, agog just to hear his story. There he was in the midst of people, trees, debris, out in the ocean, and he told himself, this is it. I'm gone. I'm going to be dead. He knew that his wife and daughter had been swept away as well, had no idea where they were. But then, just as suddenly as it is swept it out, it dropped him back on the beach. As well as his wife and daughter that he found later that day. He was praising God. As I listened to that with open-mouthed astonishment, it reminded me of the picture that is painted in this psalm. Psalm 46 pictures someone standing on firm ground in the Holy Land, and suddenly there's an earthquake, a seismic event. It snakes under their feet, and there's nowhere to stand. If you were a Hebrew... That meant your only place to run was upward and inland in that narrow neck of land between the sea and the Mount Carmel range. But as he tried to run to the mountains, the mountains were tottering over and falling into the sea. Well, the only other place to go was to jump into the eastern Mediterranean. And he tells us that when he jumped into the sea, it's as if pieces of mountain were floating by like styrofoam beach toys. 
the psalmist describes in verses 1, 2, and 3 of this psalm, using metaphor, it's what it's like when life shakes you up so much that you don't have anywhere to stand, where everything you think was nailed down comes loose. And when what you thought couldn't be shaken is shaken up. I wonder right now, if one somebody you in this gallery around in the transepts listening beyond here on the web, say, <laughs> if a text ever had my thumbprint on it, it's that text. Everything in my life I thought was nailed down seems to be coming loose. Those who study this psalm say that its background may have been an international situation. When it was written, the dominant world empire was um, Assyria. Just as much attention is on the same place in the world nowadays. The Assyrians had an army of 180,000 people under their emperor Sennacherib. They were coming against the tiny capital of Jerusalem with its tissue-thin walls, no defense Jerusalem was as good as gone. When? Just before dawn, Jehovah's death angel went over the army, and when the Jews looked over the wall, the army was gone, taken away. Or others say that this psalm records a personal experience of the psalmist. Some emotional confusion, some psychological disruption, some spiritual difficulty, and he talked about it as if it were an earthquake and a tsunami in his own life. We don't know whether it was an international situation where everything suddenly changed or whether it was something personal in his life that disrupted him. Either one or the other, he wants to hand you this simple, rudimentary, basic, timeless truth. And it's this. And he wants it to land right in your lap this morning. And that is when everything is shaken up that can be shaken up, God alone is your refuge. Amen. Would you let me unpack this a few moments? And I'll sit down. God is refuge. It, 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 this scene is described <laughs> in great vividness. An earthquake, a tsunami, mountains falling into the sea, everything coming apart that can come apart. <laughs> but that's not the first word in the song. The first word in this psalm is God is our refuge. And because that's first, the psalmist can also say, therefore, we will not fear. It's interesting that the word for God here in the language of Scripture is not the name of God used later, Yahweh, the covenant-making God. No, no. This is the oldest name for God that we know. Just E-L, L. If you push back to the empty tomb of Christ in the cross, push back before Bethlehem, push back across the three silent centuries, push back before there were prophets, push back to Moses at that burning bush, 1400 B.C., push back to Abraham, that Mesopotamian, push all the way back to the gates of the Garden of Eden. This is what our first parents looked up and called God. Hey, it means this, church. As long as God has been God, it's the nature of God 
to want to be a refuge. When Adam and Eve left that garden, a refuge. Come close to me just a moment. If you haven't found this out in life, everything that you think is fixed can quickly become unfixed. I've had a good experience in life, <laughs> and I've found out that the people who pat you on the back on the way up are the people who don't know your name on the way down. <laughs> they have a tendency to get amnesia. Maybe somebody here this morning has found out that things you thought were fixed are unfixed, done, or undone, and it seems to have happened all at once. Somewhere in one of Shakespeare's plays, he says, troubles seldom come as single centrymen. When they come, they come in battalions. Over in Texas, where I'm from, we say, when it rains, <laughs> it pours. I wonder if somebody sitting here today would say, you know, this psalmist describes how I feel. A soul tsunami. You know, maybe the bank account is sub-zero. The ATM doesn't recognize you when you walk up. <laughs> lost your job, maybe friends have forgotten your name, maybe a medical diagnosis, maybe the repo man is after your car, or the landlord's at the door of your flat, or all of that together. That's life. But what this psalmist says is God is your refuge at just that time. Next year will be the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther used this psalm as the basis of the great Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He translated it in German, Ein Festeberg, A Mighty Rock Tower is Our God. And you may say, well, Joel, that's fine, but if he's there, I need to know how to get to him. Well, he wants you to, because look at the next phrase in this. God is a refuge, a very present help. When? In trouble. Not when God's in his heaven and all's right with the world and the sun's in your face and the wind's at the back. No! When life brings trouble, that's when God lets himself be found. Literally, the phrase says, when life is in the straits. A strait is a narrow neck of land between, uh, or water between two pieces of land, like off the boot of Italy in the ancient world. The ancients spoke of a rock and a whirlpool, the Scylla and the Charybdis. If you went too far to port, you'd hit the rock, but if you went too far to starboard, you'd hit the whirlpool, and you, have, you were hemmed in. We would say today, when life is between a rock and a hard place, that's where God lets himself be found. So many people are confused about the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And they think, when I get it all together, I'll get to him. When things are better, when I'm at ease. No. The place he likes to meet you is between the rock and the hard place. That's why sometimes he lays you down so you'll look up. He makes you to rest in green pastures so you'll stop and see him. But look at the promise because tsunamis and earthquakes are not the first word because God is the first word. Notice that the psalmist says, therefore we will not fear. <laughs> Do you know that there's a catalog of at least 800 named 
fears or phobias today. Some of them are contradictory phobias. There's agoraphobia, that's fear of being in open places, and there's claustrophobia, that's fear of being in closed-in places. That, that's just the beginning of them. A to Z, 800 fears. There's arachnophobia, that's uh, fear of uh, spiders. I have that one. <laughs> There's herpetophobia, fear of snakes. There's even triskaidekaphobia, that's fear of Friday the 13th. <laughs> Here's a good one. There's homilophobia, that's fear of sermons. <laughs> Hope nobody has that one right now. And yet, the word of the gospel from beginning to end is fear not. Psalmist says, because God is a refuge, we will fear not. Remember the coming of our Lord when that angel Gabriel appeared to that teenage Jewish maiden virgin in Nazareth and there announced to her that she would be with child without a husband of the Holy Spirit. Gabriel made a motion and she seconded it. But what was the first thing he said when he showed up? Fear not. The gospel began with that word. When Jesus came to walking on the water to the disciples in that famous moment, they were in the boat and they thought they saw a ghost. What did he say? Fear not. And after his resurrection, when they were locked in a room for fear of their enemies, he appeared and it was the same Jesus. Fear not. In fact, 60 years later, when the only surviving eyewitness apostle John was on the island of Patmos, there in the Aegean, and suddenly the cosmic Christ appeared. Not meek and mild Jesus, but Christ with eyes like lasers, a sword coming out of his mouth, the word of God, gleaming, glistening, feet of brass. The same Jesus, what was his first word? Fear not. The word of Paul to his mentee Timothy is the word for that. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And this psalmist says, even though everything's shaken up in your life, it can be shaken up. If God is your refuge, you don't have to fear. There's one somebody here, you find yourself alone. Maybe you've had a companion for decades and decades and now you're alone. And in the middle of the night, you hear things you never heard before. <laughs> because you're alone. Creaking of the floorboards, sounds like somebody's at the door, disturbances. You have the right to say, if you are a born again believer, fear not, fear not, fear not. God's not given me a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. You're waiting for a diagnosis. You don't know what the future holds. Anxiety, heart beating, eyes wide open, breath abated, what's next? If you know Christ, you can say, God's not given me a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind. I can't tell you how many times and how many circumstances and how many places, when, where, and how I've spoken that word in the face of the enemy, your enemy, the adversary, the devil, who wants to give you a spirit of fear. You can rebuke him. Amen. James chapter 4 doesn't say debate with the devil. What does it say? Rebuke him. 
and he will flee from you. God is your refuge. That'd be good enough, wouldn't it? But then look at verse four. God also gives you an inward resource. The scene changes in this psalm. You're at the beginning of the psalm, in the middle of an earthquake, a tsunami, mountains falling over. But look at verse 4. A river, the streams of which make glad the city of God. If I were Steven Spielberg or George Lucas or someone making a movie out of this, I'd love one of these scenes to resolve into the other. Everything shaking up, tsunami. But then suddenly, you're down by a quiet, River, a river that breaks out into multiple streams that makes the people in the city of God glad. It's a beautiful symbol. It's a metaphor. It's a way of speaking that regardless of how things may be shaking in your life, God offers you a quiet inner resource of his power. Have you ever noticed that human power is noisy? Whenever human beings want to demonstrate power, drop a bomb, fire a missile, shoot a gun. Human power is noisy. That's how we make. Not so God. God's power, the psalmist says, is like a river. The further it goes, the wider it grows, the deeper it flows, quiet power. The other day in the States, I was flying over the Grand Canyon, deep gorge, visited by millions from all over the world. It was cut by the quiet power of the Colorado River, one grain of sand at a time, quiet power. God's power is like that. Jesus said in Luke, the kingdom of God comes without observation. That is, it's not real loud, but it's powerful. Let me put it this way. In this vast city today, in some baby's nursery, the, the sunshine of the rising sun came through the window and hit that baby in the eyes, but that sunlight was so quiet that it didn't even wake the baby up. Do you know at the same time, that sun was so powerful that it was lifting millions of tons of water out of the oceans around us creating the high-pressure, low-pressure systems, dumping that water in rain, and yet it didn't even wake up that baby. You don't like water? Look at the green trees. Everything green outside of us today in these vast parks and these shrubs and trees has chlorophyll in it. Do you know the sun striking that chlorophyll makes the atmosphere of this planet possible? And yet I doubt anybody at the breakfast table this morning looked across the table and said, well, honey, the sun's striking the chlorophyll. You weren't even thinking about it. But it's an example of God's quiet power. That is why the psalmist says in the middle of tsunamis and earthquakes and tottering mountains, God's power is at work. He compares it to a quiet, powerful river. I want to ask you, do you have a sense of any inward resource? Is there something inside of you that meets what's going on outside? I don't mean noisy or dramatic. Even though it's unseen, it's the most real thing in your life. 
And you say, I just don't see that, Joel. Well, then you need to be born from above because a burnout, cynical religionist named Nicodemus came to Jesus one night and Jesus said, Nick, you don't see it because you haven't been born from above. He said, when you're born from above, you see the reign of God, which no one else even sees. You know, Jerusalem was an interesting city in the world in that it's not on a river, and this psalmist has a river coming out of Jerusalem. Strange, isn't it? I mean, here, this, this great capital is on the Thames, Paris on the Sand, Cairo on the Nile, Washington on the Potomac. There's no river in Jerusalem. And yet this psalmist in Jerusalem says there's a river. What is that river? If you go over to Ezekiel 47, that bizarre eccentric prophet had a vision that out of the temple in Jerusalem one day there would come a river. He, he, he said the further it goes, the deeper it grows. He said it's ankle deep, thousand, knee deep, thousand more, waist deep than you can swim. A river from the temple. Strange thing, isn't it? There's no river in Jerusalem. Ah. In John 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood at that very temple, and while they were pouring water out of a golden pitcher into a silver funnel, he said, If anyone thirst, let him come to me, and out of his innermost being will come rivers of living water. That's what the psalmist was pointing to. In the same way you see the mast of a ship, but don't see the ship over on the horizon he saw the day when the Son of God would stand in that very temple and would cry out, if you come to me and you're thirsty, out of your innermost being will come rivers of living water. Isn't it wonderful that he said all you have to be is thirsty? You don't have to get a degree to be thirsty. You don't have to understand theology to be thirsty. You don't have to take lessons in thirst. If there's anything basic, rudimentary, and fundamental to humanity, you know when you're thirsty. And Jesus said, if you're thirsty, there'll be rivers of living water. John says he was speaking of the spirit that was not yet given because he was not yet glorified. But that spirit is given now. You might say, Joel, I need that right now. Why doesn't God do it? Well, let me suggest when he does it. Cast your eye down another verse and it says, God will help her and that at the break of day. God has a preferential time for deliverance. And that's when everybody knows it must have been God. It couldn't be anybody else. You see that? Some translations say at the break of day. Some say at the peep of dawn. Some of your translations say God will help in the fourth watch of the night. That ancient world divided the night up into sundown to 9 p.m. That was the first watch. Nine to midnight, second watch. Midnight to three, third watch. Three to dawn, fourth watch. Yeah, it's easy to stay awake, first watch. Second watch, people got tired of. I don't know what your custom is here in Texas where I pastor and in a number of sites, sometimes little churches out in rural areas. If anyone was ill, we'd go to the hospital and we'd sit up with them all night sometimes. Everybody at the church would be there from sundown till nine and they'd put on some coffee and they'd be the nine to midnight. About midnight, most people would look at their watch and say, I think everything's in control. Hardest watch of the night was from three till dawn. 
Every nerve cries out for sleep. Eyes heavy, metabolism slow. The psalmist says God will help her in the fourth watch of the night. God's preference is to act in such a way <laughs> that he'll get the glory for it. You see, if God helped you in the first watch of the night, most of us are so proud we'd say, <laughs> look what I did. If it was the second watch of the night, we'd say, ha, yeah, yeah I, you ought to know the network I've got. I have 5,000 friends on Facebook. Some of them showed up. But if it's the fourth watch of the night, angels in heaven and demons in hell and unbelievers around you have to say, that must have been God. Some of you are wondering, when will my deliverance will come? When will God come through for me? When will I have a personal exodus? When will I be rescued? Oftentimes, God has a preference of moving in when things seem to be at their very lowest. So you and everybody else will know that it's God. There was a self-taught Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee. Some of you may have read his book, The Normal Christian Life. He tells a story about being out swimming with some Chinese Christian brothers. And one couldn't swim at all. One was a good swimmer. The rest of them were just average. And the, and the brother who couldn't swim began to drown. And Watchman said he went down once, twice, three times, just his hand was over water. Everybody was calling out to the good swimmer, save him, save him. And he, the good swimmer just stayed there, save him. Finally, the good swimmer jumped in. A few sure swift strokes saved him. Watchman said, I was mad at him. I began to hate that brother who wouldn't jump in. And the aftermath will ask him, why, why did you almost let him down? Watchman said the good swimmer said he was so rigid and so stiff and threshing the water so much he might have drowned me. I had to wait until he was limp. And when he was limp, I could save him. Come close to me. Is there one somebody here that God is waiting for you to be limp? Waiting for you to come to the end of everything. And then he moves into your life. Maybe that's you. Wait a minute. If God is a refuge and gives you the resource, this living water, the metaphor, the psalmist says you can relax. Look at verse 10. Up to this time, this has been a narration by the psalmist. He's been the announcer, as it were. But in verse 10, God speaks. <laughs> There's a word from the sponsor. <laughs> God says, be still. And know that I am God. Hebrew is a very vivid language. Literally, the language says, let your hands hang down. We talk a lot about our hands. We say, I, I was just wringing my hands. Or this situation, what, got out of hand. Or I just threw my hands up. I couldn't do anything else about it. Or we say of somebody that we can't handle, oh, he, she's a real handful. Or Pontius Pilate gave the world uh, this vision of just washing your hands of the whole situation. We throw them up, we wash them. God speaks and says, I'm God. I'm refuge. I'm your resource. You can relax. <laughs> I know what somebody's thinking. It's what the enemy tells you. He says, well, that may be so for some people, but my problem is so complicated that it's a riddle inside of an enigma, inside of a paradox, 
And you think that God has gotten dizzy and fallen off his throne just because of your problem. That somehow he's resigned. No. <laughs> the God who dealt with Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, Augustus, Tiberius, and hundreds of others didn't resign because of your problem. No. He says, let your hands hang down. I am God. Sometimes we don't let him do that. Did you hear about the tragedy of the rooster? Rooster is a tragedy. The rooster, uh, <laughs> the rooster crowed when the sun came up, woke up the hens, the swine, the sheep, the cattle, and the farmer. The rooster noted that when the rooster crowed, the world started. And then the rooster made a foul deduction. The rooster decided not that he crowed because the sun came up, he decided the sun came up because he crowed. Well, it made him a very serious rooster. The world starts because I crow. Finally, he became an insomniac rooster, couldn't sleep because he was afraid the world wouldn't start. At the end, they had to carry him off to a home for disturbed roosters <laughs> because he thought the world started because he crowed. Some of us feel that way about life, particularly driven people, type A people, overachieving people, controlling people. One of the first things you learn when God gets serious with you is how little you ultimately control and how much he controls. Did you ever see Jesus wringing his hands? I don't see that. I don't see it. <clears throat> There's no Mark 10 verse 8. And Jesus threw up his hands on him. Never. No, he walked with a pace. What I see the Father doing, that's what I'm doing. Wouldn't you like to know a secret of life like that? No strain, no stress. Able to deal with life as he dealt with it. What I see the Father doing, that's what I'm doing. You know the only thing that ever stressed him? It's a pitiful story. The only thing that ever stressed him was he took your sins on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that you might be made the very righteousness of God in him. That stressed him. He said, I wish this could pass from me. But I came for this hour. Other than that, never a stress in his life. When he took on himself what you have and gave you what he has, yeah, the stress. Oh, you might say, Joel, you left something out. I, 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 yeah, I did. I, I left out something that's here twice just so you won't miss it. If this were a hymn, it has two refrains. Did you see it in verse 7 and 11? Twice so you don't miss it. The Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our refuge. Twice. <laughs> the Lord of hosts. That, that host is an old word that means invisible Heavenly armies. <laughs> the world we don't see. Powers, principalities, rulers of world darkness. The Lord of invisible heavenly armies is on your side. Oh. <laughs> when we're on the other side and we look back in the rearview mirror of our life, we're going to be shocked. How many times we could have been somewhere one minute earlier or one minute later, but an invisible heavenly army kept us from that. 
we're going to be shocked. But you know, I don't know as much about that as I do this second phrase. Lord of hosts is with us, but the God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, if I were God's PR company, I would have sent him a text message about this. Why don't you say the God of Abraham is our refuge? Father Abraham, founder of three great world religions, or the God of Moses is our refuge. Moses, leader of the Exodus, founder of monotheism, even the God of David, psalmist, but the God of Jacob. Jacob's one of the most undesirable people in the Bible. Have you read it? Terrible, scam artist. Always one step ahead of the posse. Turned everybody against him, on the run. But you know what, I'm so glad that this says the God of Jacob is our refuge. You know why I am? If he's the God of Jacob, that means he could be the God of Joel because he's a God of grace. In fact, this psalm points to Jesus. You say, where's Jesus? Well, it's right here in this, the, the what? It says it right here in verse 7 and in verse 11. His name, the Lord of hosts, is with us. You go back when they gave him the name. What are you going to call this baby? Call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Everything this psalm is about is now yours in Christ. Do things look dark to you? He died at a midnight at midday. Do you feel as if you're shaken up? Matthew tells us that when he died, the earth shook and cracked open. He went into all of that in order that he might bring you out. The face of this psalm today is Jesus. I want to ask you this question. Here's where I wish I could just sit down at a table with you, knew you could look you right in the eye, uh, look over a, a cup of, with you and, and, and just ask you, do you know him as personal refuge? It doesn't do you much good to come together here and to listen to a pretty speech about a psalmist 3,000 years ago who said he was a refuge as if we came here and had a memorial service for what God used to do. No. What about you? Have you encountered God's delivering power and that one this psalmist calls God with us? The God who came in the flesh, the God who died on that cross in Christ Jesus, his blood, Hitting Calvary stained with your sins and mine. <laughs> you know those little uh, badges that you wear sometimes when you go to conventions or professional meetings. They crack and peel. They write your name on them. I had a funny idea about that the other day. What if instead of your name they wrote everybody's sin on them? <laughs> Be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you want to get rid of it? <laughs> You know, if you walk by Calvary, what happened is you can take that off and put it on him. 
That's what it means when it says, he became sin for us who knew no sin, that he might give you the very righteousness of God. God is your refuge. God bless you.